Welcome back to We Drink and We Watch Things. I'm Mackenzie. And I'm Janelle. <laughs> Lamar's here, sort of, I guess. I guess we can allow Man. him to be present. This is bullshit. <laughs> this Silence is a Man. podcast takeover, guys, in case you didn't realize. We have Janelle, who is the much-talked-about, really third member of the pod, I would argue. Aww. And, uh, yeah, bringing all of her killer ideas off mic. Now she's on mic as part of our Oscar season. We are kicking it off with Poor Things, which we are super stoked about. And I know, yeah. Lamar, you wanted Janelle to join us specifically for this one. So give us yeah, a download. There's, there's two specific reasons that Janelle is helping out on the pod today. Number one is because after seeing Poor Things and having some really interesting conversations with her on the drive home, I thought it'd be cool to have multiple female perspectives on this film because I think there's a lot of underlying sort of metaphors in there that I wanted to hear more about. The second reason is that we are filming episodes back to back and I drank two shots of bourbon on the last one. And when we do that, I tend to get a little loosey goosey. So I'm going to shut up for parts of this episode and just let you guys do all the work. I thought you were going to say so like people know I'm a real person and not just like your girlfriend that you met at summer. Camp. Uh, she goes to another town. school. <laughs> He was like, really, this this is for proof. (laughs) This is for proof that she's real. She is real, folks, and she's here, and we are super excited. So thank you for coming, and I agree with you, Lamar, that uh, it's a good time to have another female voice. You're going to be outnumbered today. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. That's good. It's good. All right. Well, uh, speaking to the drinks, and apparently you're a couple shots of bourbon in, you might have uh, done yourself in with the next one. What did you? What are you drinking today? I think you should go first, <laughs> since you named your cocktails before I did. <laughs> it's true. Multiple I did, cocktails. I did. There. Well, one's a shot. One's a cocktail. Yes. I got. I really leaned in on the theme today, guys. And no spoilers, but you will eventually find out why these are relevant. I have a shot. That is called a brain hemorrhage, and it really is involved because it looks kind of like a brain when you pour it. It's fascinating. So I have this one. Well, wait, give the ingredients of that because they can't see the image is oh, terrifying. That's true. And it's the image yeah, it, it is terrifying. It has it is also settled while we uh, got prepped. Mm. I'll send you guys, don't worry, I took video and picture of the making of this particular one. And it is, um, yeah, it's butterscotch schnapps, grenadine, and Irish cream. So it's kind of peak, like, super sweet, crazy shot. I'm interested to see how it's going to taste. But I'm a little worried for you because typically when people say that Bailey's has settled in a drink, that is not going to taste good. So I'm curious to see your face when that goes down. I'm also curious, and this is one of the few times that I'm happy we have video, I guess, because it's going to be entertaining. <laughs> uh, but then also I went <laughs> I went a little risky on my other one as well, but it was purely for the color, which is mm. this is my sex and sh- – uh, blah, 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 blah. sorry. You can't on. even get the name right. I should own the rights <laughs> to that cocktail name. <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> this, was, this was color motivated, truly, uh, and this is Sugar and Violence, which mm-hmm. is Prosecco and Big Red, which <laughs> was a real risk in my view, but I needed the red. I needed the color. Look how beautifully red that is. It's, it's I, I'm here pretty. for it. I'm here for it. It's alcohol for kids. It's a great concoction, Mackenzie. It is. So it is. Janelle and I are drinking something that I mixed up today. So this is equal parts tequila white rum, um, pomegranate liqueur, and cranberry juice. And I was going to call it sex and dot, 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 or whatever your first drink was called. But instead, (laughs) 
Uh, we'll go with the God Complex and li- another Mom. little ode to poor things. Yeah, which I or, love. Or that maybe name. Furious Jumping. Oh, why didn't you say that before we I got on the pod? I would have sounded so clever. We'll just edit that. Furious okay. Jumping. Furious Jumping is what <laughs> we meant. I love all the cocktail names. We were so on theme today, guys. Mm-hmm. Like we it's did a very great. quotable, like reference full film. So yeah. It is. And if you don't get those references, you will. Don't worry. There will be a spoiler-free section to this one, as per usual. But while we're here, cheers. Here we go. Cheers. See how this goes. That was an experience. Uh, (laughs) You're like dairy on the front end (laughs) and sugar on the back. Yes, that was very sweet. And I both do and do not regret my choices uh, (laughs) because it looked awesome. Leaves a lot to be desired on the palate, but that's fine. (laughs) All righty. Well, obviously, again, we're talking about poor things today. So we're going to do our typical, for those of you who may or may not be new here, we're going to have a spoiler-free section at the top. We're going to go over the basics of the film, some cool factoids and whatnot, Uh, most especially the awards that are relevant for this, super relevant for this right now. The number of noms Mm -hmm. is bananas. Um, and then we'll go into our ratings, our spoiler-free ratings, of course, and then we will get real because this one is bananas, I think is, is fair to say. So kicking us off, this is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. He's a Greek director who is known for things like The Lobster, The Favorite. I still haven't seen. Still haven't seen The Lobster. Well, asterisk, I didn't love The Lobster. I actually also didn't love The Favorite, which is his other very oh, famous yeah. film. And uh, I feel a little blasphemous saying that because these are both like pretty universally acclaimed when they came out. They were very critically acclaimed films. And I literally at the end of The Lobster was like, I need to watch this again because I clearly don't get it. You know, I was like, I don't get what people are talking about. And I still feel that way. I haven't made my way back to it yet, but I'm like, everyone loved this and I clearly didn't understand, you know? So, uh, and the favorite was kind of similar for me whereas I was like, I don't love this. Um, but have you seen the yep. favorite? No, they're both on my two watch list. I have seen killing of a sacred deer, yeah. which is his, him directing as well. And definitely different vibes than this one. I remember you asked me, Janelle asked me on the drive home. Oh, is that one funny too? Like kind of a dark comedy. I was like, no, it's killing the sacred. Playing like pure sociopath. Uh, And so that one is really dark, but I do like, I feel like with the name Yorgos, he either had to go into the film industry or he had to be a magician. Yorgos (laughs) the great. So I do love his name. Which I somehow think comes. Yeah, I feel like that comes through in this actually, like his vibe in this film. Maybe this is his magician moment. But yeah, I don't. Janelle, have you seen The Favorite or The Lobster? Did you like those? I've seen both. I saw The Lobster and The Favorite. I've been meaning to rewatch The Lobster and also meaning to get him to watch it for the first time Um, because I liked it. I didn't get why it was nominated for things, but I did Mm. enjoy watching it. Mm. The Favorite, I was kind of like, that was a movie. Like, okay. yeah. Of all the films I've seen, that was one of them. <laughs> I, I think can the move on. <laughs> right. I think the performances were interesting and well done in that one, but mm-hmm. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't get. I didn't get into the story for sure, but uh, but yeah, I do need to do a rewatch of the lobster. I know the the concept there was also very unique, so I mean, yeah. it had that going for it for sure. But all right, well, that's what 
That's what our director is known for, some of those pieces. Um, and then we have writer Tony McNamara, who did also did The Favorite with him, which is interesting. Mm. Um, but he also did Cruella with – all these are like the little trifecta of them, them two and Emma Stone for both yeah. of those, which I thought was cool. Um, and then he's done a lot of TV, it seems like. Like not as many films, but definitely a lot of TV like – um, the Great, which is about Catherine the Great, mm-hmm. uh, Empress of Russia, if you didn't know about that one. And then Dr. Doctor and a couple others. So, yeah, he's he's our one of our main writers. I think he's the more film writer because the other credited writer is Alistair Gray. And this was his book. This is based on his book. I just actually. learned that today. Uh, yeah. I didn't know that this was based on a novel. Hmm. Yeah. And the novel is slightly different for sure, but it is based on his novel and he hasn't done much in the way of film credits. He's mostly done, um, you know, some very small TV credits and they're very few and far between like all over the place as far as timelines. So this was really his first and only feature film, I think. And yeah, I think it's only because it's his book, to be honest. So hmm. really interesting. Yeah. But we also have a huge cast and crew to touch on. So I'm going to try and like blow through this in the interest of time. But it's a very, it's a very powerful ensemble, really interesting group, group of people. Um, of course, leading the way is Emma Stone as Bella, Bella Baxter, our main lead. And she, I think it's very clear if you are paying at all attention to Oscar season and award season in general, that she clearly did an incredible job. Uh, Mark Ruffalo who is uh, here for, for much of it, her traveling companion, Duncan. Willem Dafoe, lev- living legend as Dr. Baxter. <laughs> um, and then a couple less well-known, but but still, you know, have some, definitely have some credits to their names. Uh, I think it's Rami Youssef or Rami Youssef. I'm not sure which way to pronounce it. I meant to yeah. look that up. Yeah. Um, but he's mostly known for TV. Like, it seems mostly like a Mr. Robot. Show? Rami. It's just called Rami. Rami. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, like, it's he has something called Rami that I've never seen, but it it's named for him. And then he was in Mr. Robot, too. I know that. And so, yeah, mostly yeah. TV for him. Um, and then Christopher Abbott, who's painfully probably most well-known for Girls. I don't know if any of y'all ever saw Girls on HBO. Not my favorite show, uh, but he was on it as well. And then A Most Violent Year as well. He's in briefly. Um and then Catherine Hunter, who, fun fact, was Mrs. Fig in the Harry Potter universe. If you are wondering where you've seen her, that is where. Oh. Um, and then Susie Bemba, I felt needed to be included. She plays Toinette, who is a friend of Emma's, uh, Bella's Down the Road. And she's done mostly French film. So I think she's probably known in the French film community, but not a lot of like American films yet. But so this is kind of her one of her first ones, it looks like. Yeah, pretty stacked cast. And like, it's always fun to see. We always get mixtures of new groups of folks in Hollywood of making films together. And it's interesting to see those dynamics of Emma Stone playing off Willem Dafoe, playing off Mark Ruffalo. Like, I think the three of them really carry this film. Everyone is is pretty great. I'm going to have one complaint later on about one specific cast member. But I think that those three really do nail it and they just make this such an enjoyable experience. I'm on the edge of my seat for the complaint now. Thanks for teasing (laughs) that out. Appreciate it. Cool, cool, cool. Um, Well, I have a very simplified plot summary for folks. It's, really kind of a complicated story but without it's probably best you keep it simple because some people have baby brains so (laughs) 
They do. They do. Uh, both in and out of this film. So <laughs> I would say plot summary, yes, to keep it simple because it, it can get pretty complicated in this movie. It is an incredible tale about the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, a young woman brought back to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist, Dr. Godwin Baxter. So super simplified version, but I feel like mm-hmm. almost the only things you can say, you know, without... Yeah. Giving yeah. too many spoilers. Yeah. I think it's best to walk in knowing as little as possible. This is another one where I didn't really watch the trailers. I had heard a couple reviews from friends in passing that gave very little away. And I'm glad that they didn't spoil the shit out of yeah. it because I think this film evolves and it's kind of like a three to four act structure of what takes place. But I think going yeah. into it, just knowing what you said is pretty, pretty good. Yeah. And I think um, I agree. It's. I hadn't seen much of it and I didn't really or much in the way of trailers and spoilers. And I didn't want to, I was kind of like, even just from a glance, you could tell it was the trailer wasn't going to probably do it justice. I still haven't really seen a trailer for it. And I'd be interested to know having seen it if I felt like it did, but I didn't really dig into like, what is this about? And you know, what's the plot here? So I think that helped you get to kind of like go into watching this as a, real unknown and i think it makes it more of an experience so yeah i for those of you who haven't seen it i would in an effort to keep it that way we probably won't say much more about it other than some of our feelings here in a second but i gotta touch on the oscar noms like 11 fucking nominations for this thing in a year of some big contenders as we know you know an oppenheimer a barbie a maestro a bunch of these other ones um and it got 11 so the the noms are as follows best picture Directing, actress, supporting actor, adapted screenplay, cinematography, film editing, production design, costume design, original score. Fun fact, this is his first ever makeup and hair. So like these are, I mean, they just like swept practically up across categories. And I thought it was really cool to find out that the the gentleman who did the score, Jerson Fendricks, is like a pop musician. Don't know really anything else about him other than this is his first score and he nominated his first time out. So when you Pretty say stacked. pop musician, do you mean like he's released singer? Is he a producer or is he like a solo artist? Would we know anything that he's done? He's a solo artist from what I read, but I, yeah, I haven't read any of his, I mean, seen any of his stuff yet. Have you done any it, Nickelback songs <laughs> that I might know? Probably. Nickelback at least one. does those. But like producing them or like <laughs> ghostwriting, like, you know. He probably, you know, I think everybody does a Nickelback cover at some point in their journey to stardom. So it's probably well, what If anybody follows this guy on Spotify and can send me one of those <laughs> to get my feet wet a little bit, I would appreciate it. People talk so much shit about Nickelback. I actually liked them. So I guess that makes me the loser. It's fine. I don't I think it's people. It's the, a pile on thing at this point. Mm-hmm. Like it's it just is. the hip thing to dislike. But look at Creed. Everybody yes. hated them like 20. And now they're the hip thing to like again and Limp Biscuit. So just don't, don't follow trends, people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Just... It was never cool to not like Limp Bizkit. <laughs> she knows, uh, like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> She's like, I cannot let this stand. <laughs> I love that for us. Yeah. Take no. it from the word of somebody who was cool. It was cool to not like Limp Biscuit. <laughs> Disagree. Disagree. I love that the testimonial of who was cool is coming from the person <laughs> saying they're cool. So isn't that what cool people do? I thought we said we were. Oh, no, I feel like doing it backwards this whole time. (laughs) Shit. 
<laughs> this is what I hope is the beginning of the pile on Lamar episode. This feels yeah. like it's going places. Oh, I love it. All right. Well, quick update again on the on the awards. One, they haven't aired yet, as we know, but the Globes did. And Emma did win for Best mm-hmm. Actress at the Golden Globes. And that is one of the precursor award shows, but they've been nominated for a bunch of other awards, you know, BAFTAs, etc. Um, and it won Best Comedy at the Globes as well. So rather than just a single Best Picture at the Golden Globes, they do a Best Comedy and a Best Drama. And it won Best Comedy. So it's a, it's been very successful critically, but it has barely beaten its budget so far. So we'll see if that... If it ekes out any further, but probably not much. It was a $35 million budget, I think, and it's at 35.2. So well, I think, but there's probably a logic to that of it was when we found out in our audience poll on Instagram that this was the movie we were going to be doing. We had to go to the theater to see it because it's not streaming. Yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering, you know, they caught that break where it was still in theaters when all these the award season came up. So they left it in there to try and hopefully make up and get a little bit of momentum going that way. I did want to shout out two quick things. Do you happen to know in the Golden Globes, did they also win any of the visual effects awards for this one? Just those two. That's interesting to me because I think of anything, I I can't speak to a lot of the the performances because I haven't seen a lot of the best supporting actor or best actress nominees yet. But Mm -hmm. I think visually, without spoiling anything, this film is incredible. Like, I can see where the money went. And we'll get more into the details of that. But it's really cool visually. Yeah, I agree. I think it was a really interesting across, like, set design, production design, costume, makeup, etc. Like, very unique presentation of what is supposed to be a 19th century period piece. But mm-hmm. it really turns that era on its head, yep. you know, visually speaking, for sure. So, yeah, I, I'm surprised at that as well. I can't remember who won those categories. I'd be interested to go back and look at that. But, um, but yeah, it didn't win. So that's kind of odd. I did love what uh, Emma said. I think it, I don't know if it was in her speech or after her speech, but she said that um, playing Bella was unbelievable. I see it as a rom-com. Bella falls in love with life itself. The movie made me look at life differently and she has stayed with me. So again, that's a spoiler free quote, but it'll give you an idea of like this character's trajectory as somebody who won for playing her sees it. So I think that's a fun, interesting, uh, interesting thing that she said about it during the award season. Yeah. And Adding on to that and something else you said of it, one best comedy. So I think if you have not seen this film and you're just looking for our non-spoiler review of should you see it, it's a funny, funny movie. Yeah, I think it's very clever. I think it does things that no film has done before as far as its characterization and the things it does with its script and its dialogue. I think it's very clever, very witty, and definitely a very good comedy while still having some very interesting messages along the way. I think to your point, it has done a lot of things that no other film has done. It film it was it's the first feature film that was shot on um Ektachrome, Kodak Ektachrome, which a lot of people have probably heard of like Kodak Kodachrome for example is maybe one of their most famous pieces of film, but Ektachrome is used when Kodachrome isn't fast enough and it gives it a very distinct color visual, which I think is really really critical to know for this film it's very you know throughout the film you notice the use of color and fun fact that's the film that like national geographic uses which you guys may or may not know is like very vivid colors very beautiful i I didn't know anything of what you just said but i appreciate you educating (laughs) us 
<laughs> well, it's it like, is a you guys is, might know. No, I do not know. But <laughs> well, you don't you. have to know the fr- film, but you would potentially know that National Geographic is known for like their vivid color shots and and especially mostly nature shots, but in general like vivid color. And that's the film that they use, and it's the first film feature length film to ever do it so again it's just i'm just speaking to how much it breaks ground in a lot of ways like really top to bottom i think so want to do a quick round of of reviews as spoiler free as we can i think like lamar hit us and then i want to i would love to hear janelle what you think yeah yeah um i am gonna rate this very highly it was a unique experience and i think that's the only way i can sort of describe it is just i i haven't seen another film exactly like this it it pays homage to a couple things along the way but yeah it just was totally unexpected i didn't could not predict where the story was going i laughed a lot but i still experienced a lot of emotional moments in this and yeah i would rate this probably like a nine or so i think there will be maybe a couple things i'll critique when we get into the spoiler section but i think this is absolutely worth finding the time and i think it's one of the rare cases where i would say yeah go see this in theaters i know it's not some crazy ass action flick but the visuals in this are very very cool and it's cool to see how the film evolves over time so i'll go nine wow that is high go eight or nine i don't know maybe an eight maybe a nine up there, though. Definitely enjoyed you it. The, you have to pick one or the other. 8.5. 8. Oh, there you go. She's, um, he says that. I never pick one or the other. You don't have to do that either. Yeah, I, I also tell Mackenzie she has to pick three <laughs> Desert Island movies, and she picks 14. <laughs> well, this one, this series counts as one movie. Uh, it tells you how much we listen to Lamar on the pod. So, moving on. That's, that I, translates to home home life a little bit. So, why would you give it an 8 or 8.5? Oh, um, yeah, because uh, it was original. It was really fun to watch. It was very beautiful to watch. Um, Funny, also oddly relatable in a way that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting to relate to a Frankenstein monster, but (laughs) here we are. (laughs) Yeah, it was good. I agree. It's so funny that that's where you landed, Janelle, because I was exactly the same eight and a half, like eight to nine was where I was and I was trying to split the difference. So yeah, I totally agree. Like eight and a half out of 10 for all the reasons both of you said. Um, I think the only thing I would add to that is that the themes of this, despite when it is placed in the 19th century ish, as we said, um, are very modern themes and a really interesting take on some feminist viewpoints, some even socialist viewpoints I've heard people mention, things like that. But it does it in, I think, what is a really subtle way. So yeah, I think it's worth a watch for sure. So yeah, like eight and a half. So I think the takeaway for you folks who are listening is go see it. And I agree with you, Lamar, in theaters. I think it's an in-theater The only caveat that I would add is this is similar to what we said about Saltburn was this is nowhere near as controversial, I think, as Saltburn. But I do think there are definitely provocative elements and times that I felt uncomfortable during this, especially in the first half. Um, so I do think you have to go in with that a similar open mind. Don't feel, you know, if you have PTSD from Saltburn, it is not that level, but still somebody who's more prudent or like uh, has a... I guess, different idea of what they're walking into might feel very uncomfortable. And we didn't have anybody like walk out of our screening or anything like that. I think most people in the theater, it took them a while to realize. And I think that was part of the experience for me was being surrounded by other people. 
And I'm like, am I supposed to be laughing right now? You know, 15 minutes in the movie and hearing right. everyone else, a couple people chuckle along with me. And eventually the whole theater is laughing, you know, 20 minutes later. So that told me, okay, this is an intentional comedy. So, yeah, I think it is. And, but it deals with some interesting situations where you are, to your point, not sure how you're supposed to feel about them. That's for sure. Um, and I would say just one caveat there about the salt burn piece. You know, I think your comfort level very much depends on your position in society for this one uh, and how strongly you will react to some of the things that happened. This is a this is a very autonomous character, despite her origin story. And not everyone reacts well to that, especially with the ways that she chooses to act on that newfound freedom, I think as well. So I think that you'll find that a lot of people didn't respond well to it. And I actually read several stories of people who did walk out of screenings. They were like, this is too weird for me. Um, but I think there's a lot of reasons why. So I'd be, I super want to hear from our fans that's, what they end up thinking like of That's like a bummer. I mean, yeah. I've never, I don't think I've ever walked out of a movie before. I feel like I should see something through to completion yeah. to see what the message is. And I could see during this or during a salt burn or something where somebody might walk out because they're uncomfortable, but yeah. without getting the whole scope, you're just judging it based on one scene and you're not getting what the actual story being told is. A hundred percent. I, there was one film in particular and maybe we talk about it another time. I don't know that I had very strong feelings about while I was watching it. And I was like, I want to leave. I... Is this Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle or was it the second one? With, <laughs> Gosh, you like, got uh, me. I was trying not to out these Danny movies. Glover. You know what I mean? Like, geez. Yeah. No, it was, unfortunately, it was a, a really rough watch. But same as you, I didn't watch out, walk out because I was like, I don't know truly how I'm going to feel about this unless I finish it. So I have to sit here and just suffer through. And I deeply regretted it that time. But I, I do think it's the only way you know for sure. Is to watch. I it. also want to point out that even though I'm sitting here on a high horse and saying, "Oh, I wouldn't walk out because I need to see the whole story," it's also I am a cheapskate and I'm like, I paid twelve dollars for this. I'm not walking <laughs> out. So it's probably a balance of both of those reasons. I also have those feelings. I'm like, if I paid for it, I'm staying for sure. But yeah, I think you can't come to a, an opinion about something uh, that without having seen the whole thing. I mean, this is the debate around Barbie, for example, is reminds me very much of that of like tons of men who are like, I don't want to see it. It's garbage. Blah blah blah. But wouldn't go see it. And yep. only the people who went and saw it and gave it a chance realized, okay, there's more to this movie, you know, than mm -hmm. I thought. And it was really good. So anyway, all that to say, guys, this is a weird one, but it's worth a watch. I think Absolutely. you should go see it. Okay. For sure. Okay. So we, we've danced around it. It is spoiler time. Guys, uh, turn around. Don't drown. Shit's about to get real. Uh, Ooh, who, who's ready to talk about horny Frankenstein? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that was my new title. It was like the colon... Horny Frankenstein. <laughs> Horny Frankenstein's monster, Lamar. Jesus, yeah, get it duh. right. Wait, I thought Frankenstein was the thing with the bolts in its neck, no? No. Frankenstein's wow. the doctor. Wow. I learned oh, wow. something today. Don't be that guy at parties, okay? Nobody, I am, nobody should I am be that guy. I am that guy as a person. I don't know what to tell you, like in my soul. <laughs> I'm putting that on your tombstone. That guy as a person. <laughs> Listen, if I have an opportunity to educate i do it what can i say it's very altruistic you know what can i tell you <laughs> um no but that's such a good <laughs> such a good and hilarious summary like this is definitely a frankenstein's monster and one of her recurring themes is her 
cornelius level that's for sure so i think i'll kick it to you guys like how do we want how do we want to do this do we want to just hop around do we want to talk themes do we again this is a weird movie there's a lot that happens so I, i i'm open this is a fun one to tackle but challenging no nonetheless I think it's probably best if we just sort of jump around again. I'm going to shut up for I promised that I was going to shut up and I haven't yet. <laughs> but I, now that we're in spoiler territory, I think I'm going to take a back seat and see where you guys sort of take the conversation. And I promise I'm not going to Joe Coy you and jump in with an ill-timed joke that shoots <laughs> down all the progress this film tried oh, to make. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for that reference, by the way. Yeah, you're welcome. That is Anytime, on buddy. point. All right. Well, I think we will start with what you said, though, because I do, like I said, it was funny, but also I think weirdly accurate. The main character here is Bella, who is a Frankenstein's monster type of creature. Her quote unquote father type of figure or creator type of figure is Dr. Baxter, Dr. Godwin Baxter, which is an important thing to consider because she calls him God throughout. She calls him God. And he is, again, alluded to over and over as being her creator and being a godlike figure. And he he does. He kind of treats it as though he has the right to do some of the things he does, which I think are very controversial. And you can't get away from that, to your point, Lamar, that God complex. Like he has a God complex and it manifests into her creation, which we have to say is very controversial in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, she's found dying, moral of the story, in like a ravine. It looks like, you know, on the shores of, of somewhere, river, what have you. And he thinks he can save her. He ends up not being able to save her, but she is pregnant with a baby who is at the moment still alive. And he makes a, you know, game time decision to take the brain out of the baby and put it in her body and reanimate her. Right. I mean, I guess that's how we would describe it. Right. He brings her back to life. He reanimates her. Um, And it's very much purported to be this altruistic decision of I am trying to save this person. This comes from a good place, not just from a place of experimentation, but I don't think you can overlook that that's part of it. Um, But it's presented a little bit more altruistically than Frankenstein is what I would say. Like if you compared the two doctors, it's like a Frankenstein had a purely intense, selfish need to, to, run this procedure versus this person is trying to save this person, but they do it in a really terrifying way. I think really interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that. Um, although God, we can call him God, Godwin. Mm. Um, I'm wondering what his motives for the other experiments were that were running around the house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Like, yes. Was that pig also on the verge of death? And it's like, well, this duck is okay, so let's just slap those together. <laughs> I wonder if that is a difference between like how he saw people versus animals too, of like these are very much test subjects versus these other folks aren't. But you also, I mean, to your point though, you do see him working on people a couple of times. Mm-hmm. It's not entirely clear what he's doing to them, but you do see that he's probably doing something relatively experimental i think yeah and i it's i think it comes up in a couple lines of dialogue of 
and I think it shows in Bella of how logical she processes things later in the film. Like she's definitely taking on the qualities of, a, of her father who kind mm-hmm. of just sees things in this logical viewpoint. So to me, and I think he also has a line of dialogue where he says something about all sex being amoral, like outside of morality. And he doesn't understand why there's mm. gray area there. Yeah. So I do think that it's just, sort of, he's a scientist for the sake of being a scientist. I don't yeah. think he's doing it to play God or anything beyond that. Even the thing that he does to himself with like the, the gastric crazy thing with the burping bubbles, which was hilarious <laughs> yeah. every single time. Oh my God. That every was, time. He was, it was kind of just like, I did this to see if we need this. Oh, do we? Yes, very much. Like that made me laugh. <laughs> but I think that's, that's a sign of him as what kind of scientist we're dealing with here. And he was also a science experiment from his father, like mm-hmm. 100%. kind of physically, you know, messed up a little because his dad was like, well, let's see what happens if I do this to a human. And, He's the end result. But I think what's interesting about that too, I think logic is the key word there of both of those that you're talking about that he does with this unfailing logic, see all of these in a very clinical way of like, we're just, it is perfectly normal to need to know the answers to these questions. And it is perfectly normal to do these things to find set answers, right? Like it definitely from the outside looking in, many of these experiments, including but not limited to his own body, seem very extreme. But they also seem incredibly innate to him, very natural to him, that this is what you would do to learn this thing. And that does seem, to your point, Janelle, to stem from his dad of like, this was how we did things. This was how we learned things. How else were we going to find this out? This was how what you needed to do. And you do, again, see it come full circle to to Bella as well. She treats things with that same very clinical lens of there's not an emotional component to this thing that she can see. It's very biological or it's very physical or very clinical, I think, in some cases. And that kind of comes through throughout, even when maybe that's not true. Maybe there's a human aspect to it that they seem a little disconnected from. Yeah, I think that's a pretty solid analysis of sort of the the dynamic between, for lack of a better word, father and daughter here, or father and creation. But I think it it becomes clear later in the film that he does care for her, unlike a lot of his other experiments. Yeah. But one thing that I really do want to drive home, since I sort of teased it in the the non-spoiler section, is just visually, I love the way this film is constructed. And I think I call, I refer to it as like a four-act structure, because I when it started, the film is completely in black and white. Mm-hmm. And I, again, didn't see the trailers, so I just assumed this would be the entire thing. And I think it's pretty obvious they're paying homage to Frankenstein and sort of monster films that's intentionally giving you that vibe. And then as soon as they get to Lisbon, that scene becomes color. And I yep. thought, oh, it's going to be each city is going to have its own different design, but future London scenes are not no longer in black and white. So it wasn't that. But just visually, the Lisbon stuff with like the way the sky is designed and the crazy tram car things flying around, which to your point earlier, are not indicative of a time period. Like it is a imaginary, like alternate universe spin on these places. Right. And the, the different locations they go. It, it felt like watching um, if anyone remembers the visuals in the Life Aquatic the different creatures in that of how they were, it was like some of it was Mm -hmm. claymation and some of it was animated and all these different things. Pieces of this reminded me of that, of just that a lot of creativity 
Um, another example would be the Spider-Verse movies, how the different Spider-Men are animated differently. That's yeah. kind of what I got out of this. And I really, really liked that in the flow of the film throughout that story structure and the visual structure. It's so funny you mentioned that be the the Lisbon piece specifically, because that's one of my biggest takeaways in this film is that that is a pivotal moment. And that is why the color shifts that she's been in this black and white world where, you know, Dr. Dr. Baxter keeps her there purposefully for a while. And it does come from a place of he's trying to protect her. I think that's very clear early on is that he's super concerned how people will receive her for what are probably obvious reasons. She's a human, a full grown physically human, but not mentally at this point. So Mm -hmm. very concerned how she will survive in the world outside of this controlled environment. But he doesn't make her a prisoner. When it's clear she wants to go, he lets her go. And she makes that choice. And then she does the thing. And I think the moment that she cashes in on her own autonomy and creates this true moment of independence for herself, the world lights up. Everything turns into this new exploration, this new experience that is beautiful and unique and special and vibrant in a way that her very confined existence up to that point could not have been. And I think it's also an allusion to the way our brains and our bodies evolve as we grow physically. Our brain is catching up with our senses, right? We're learning to see and literally learning to see clearer. And we are gaining more and more of a color palette as we get older. We're starting to take in color and visuals and all that. And so I think this was a very intentional choice in a lot of ways. And it was really striking and I think well used. And it goes on throughout. Like you said, it just gets more and more interesting visually. Yeah. And then like even the like Bella's wardrobe, like she started out where, I mean, it's black and white, so you can't really tell. But she was wearing like mostly white, like innocent, like almost, Mm -hmm. you know, infant baby-esque. Then she goes to Libsyn and everything's vibrant and she's like experiencing joy and finding pleasure. And so everything's colorful and and beautiful. And then she gets to the point where she, you know, sees the darker side of the world and like humanity. And then she starts to dress darker and her wardrobe Mm -hmm. shifts and she's wearing mostly black and like the scenery is a little Mm -hmm. darker and just kind of follows throughout. I think that's very true of like our life experiences, right? You see the, there's this great stand up that Jerry Seinfeld does to this effect where he's like, when you're really young, everything is, you know, uh, up, it's all looking up, like, you know, speed up, get up, you know, all of that. But as you get older, it's like, slow down, calm down, get down, like, things start to get a little bit you know, a little bit colder, a little bit harder. You have gone through more things. Uh, you have, you've lost a little bit of that naivete that lets you look at the world this way. And I think what you can say about her at the very beginning is she is hopeful even in Portugal, but she's naive. And you see as she learns more and she gets more life experience, not all of it positive despite its humor, she, yes, starts to kind of internalize that and it darkens her a little bit. But I think her core stays the same, which I think is really interesting uh, for her as a character. She still feels like a hopeful character. I think watching this, I was put at ease and I'm very glad that they went the route they did with Bella of, again, when the film first started, we didn't, I didn't know what her situation was. And that's why some of the comedy felt uncomfortable because mm-hmm. they literally they use the R word there. And I'm oh like, my God, is that yeah. what's going on? Is this, yeah. you know, uh, a mental condition of some kind? 
when you find out that it's literally her brain is growing inside of her and she's aging in an adult's body, but her mind is sort of growing throughout the film, I think the story becomes a lot more fascinating. Yeah. Um, and it becomes a lot easier to be comfortable with some of the uncomfortableness of those yeah. early scenes. I was like, oh, this is fucked up. And it yeah. still is. It still is very yeah. fucked up. But because we're seeing her grow and evolve and literally the scenes where she's saying we and peeing herself, you're like, oh, well, it makes sense when you think that she is literally a toddler in her brain. Yeah. So I would I would really like to rewatch this and with that lens in mind. Yeah, I think it contextualizes it so critically. You know, once you find the reveal, which to your point does happen quite a bit later, and I can't recall exactly where, but you do find out much later the exact situation here. And for a long time, you're not seeing why she's acting that way and also why she's being treated that way in her surroundings. Like Dr. Baxter always treats her well, but they have a housekeeper who doesn't seem to know how to deal with her and finds her very strange and all these things. So you don't get a lot of clues uh, until that is made super clear. And I think you also see her as almost as she's maturing uh, and getting a little bit more verbose and, and, you know, interacting with other people, you know, she meets Yusuf and she it ends up being betrothed to him again, as an effort to control her, make her happy and, you know, keep her there. Um, but she doesn't develop emotionally with him or at his level. And I think that's very important of like, she understands logistically, like, I'm going to marry this guy and that's fine. But she pieces out on him to go with Max and travel the <laughs> world. And literally, you know, let's be honest, just like, what is, what is it? What's the name for it again? Fucking. <laughs> no, it's furious jumping. Furious oh. jumping. I, yes, exactly. So, just a lot of furious jumping, aka fucking this <laughs> other man who is not her quote unquote betrothed. And she has at that point a real lack of emotional connection to the meaning of that. And I think that's worth a lot of analysis. And that is very interesting because it's it's not necessarily implied that she should that she should have feelings about it, but it is notable that she doesn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The whole, I'll come back to you because you're a rational, good decision. I'm going to go have fun and then I'll come back. <laughs> like, I'll be with you later. 100%. A again, a logical, logical approach. Yeah. yeah. It is a very logical approach, right? She's like, I got to go have my like, fuck around and find out years and then I'll come back and settle down, so to speak, which ultimately spoiler is kind of what she does. She mm -hmm. goes mm -hmm. and lives her life to the fullest and has these crazy experiences as a result. Um, but she does, she comes back, but I think she comes back in a real place of power, you know, of she has really come into her own. She is no longer naive. She's very aware of who she is and she has no shame about it. And I love that trajectory for her, despite, to your point, Lamar, these things that we in society in general would look at and say, this is something that would be largely considered shameful from a society perspective, right, wrong, whatever. Somebody would typically pass judgment on some of the decisions that she makes. And she doesn't pass judgment on herself. She is very aware that this is a part of her process. This is what she's doing to learn about the world, to go out and fall in love with it and fall in love with herself. And she does. And I don't think that really ever falters. She has this really innate sense of self throughout. It evolves, but she doesn't ever like disconnect from herself, I don't think. Yeah. I find interesting what you said about 
the morality of it and questioning, I guess, what would be considered societal norms, especially, you know, when she gets when they get to Paris and she takes up whoring as a hobby. And it's just like, well, it's logical that I can give sex and make money. Um, And the amount of men who judge her for doing that. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. you know, Mark Ruffalo's character knows the other prostitute at this place. So it's like he's going there and using the services, Mm -hmm. but is also critical of the woman he loves, like doing it. And yeah, I found that all very interesting. Again, it's like seeing the world through this logical, like, viewpoint. I found that Mm -hmm. really interesting. I think think a lot of the movie is just Bella Baxter, like, not ever questioning herself or doubting herself. She never has any moments of like, oh, am I not good enough? Am I not smart enough? Am I not doing the right, right thing? It's her being very confident in what she wants to do, what she can do, at the same time resisting the entire film of men trying to control her or say like, you know, like, oh, I love this about you, but I only want you to do it this much or I only want you to do it with me. Like she's just constantly mm-hmm. trying to stay true to herself while people are either telling her what to do or how she should do things. hundred percent like preach. And I, I love that for her. And I love that for us because it feels like this subtle rejection of patriarchy throughout, but it doesn't kick you in the face, right? It is just, here is this person that is just herself and is just going to be herself and is not going to allow you to control her. Some of these situations that she was in could have gone much worse right? Like, let's be honest, in in the real world, quote, unquote, these same situations have turned really tragic for women, they've become really violent, or really dangerous, and they're really terrifying. And you don't always have the ability to make the decisions that she makes, for all kinds of completely valid and real reasons, you know, fear, threat, danger. And she, that I think is where her naivety comes into play to some degree of she doesn't really know sometimes what the outcome of these these decisions that she's making could be, but she makes them nonetheless. And as she learns what some of the threats or some of the consequences of these things could be, that risk doesn't outweigh the need to just be who she is, I don't think. And I think that's where you see, like, give her credit for continuing to stay who she is. But she also exudes an autonomy that I think in this particular context leaves her less under threat. She is just like Mark Ruffalo isn't truly intimidating to her because she has a confidence in herself of I can deal with this. I can deal with him regardless of how he handles the situation and the choices that I'm making. And to your point, Lamar, the incredibly hypocritical handling on his part of the way that I want to live my life. Like you can't go be a whore, but I can, I can visit whores, which is, you know, a a classic theme, I would say. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, he did give her like three rounds of the best sex she's ever had. I mean, he feels sorry for her. (laughs) So he's quite a lover. (laughs) I love that she does give him that credit, though. And and this is, again, we're talking about the really serious (laughs) themes, but there are some very fucking funny moments in this movie. And there are a lot of them around the sexual acts, but it is so funny because he at the beginning tells her to your point, you're going to be the best sex you've ever had. I feel so bad for you. And then later she's kind of like, you know what? He was kind of <laughs> right. You know, like it was- and she's trying to prove that like empirically, this proves that you were correct and you're the <laughs> right. best. So I'm going to continue wanting to have sex with you, but he's still upset that she slept with somebody else. 
And what you said before about her trying out, like exploring these adventures and being willing to put herself at risk, sometimes without knowing she's at risk, but even then still adventuring. I think that ties back to her relationship with her father and his, you know, scientists. That's Mm -hmm. their goal is to experiment and like, hey, maybe this is trial and error. Maybe this won't work. Maybe there'll be some consequences, but like, we're going to do it. It's the same reason that God has the thing in his stomach, you know, try something. Doesn't quite work out how you plan, but it's for the research. Yeah, it doesn't mean she you never don't do really it. has a sense of fear through the whole mm-hmm. movie. She's never, even all those messed up situations, yeah. where like I think classically any character like that that's been isolated for so long and then put into the world, they might be like afraid. She's never afraid the entire time, which is so aspirational, right? Like you yeah. can't, <laughs> you can't look at her and not admire that about her and admire that for her and almost wish you were that way too. Like, no, you may not even be a fearful person, but we have fears, right? It's human nature. And to see her be so incredibly brave over and over, and to your point, Lamar, be like, I have to find this out. Mm -hmm. This is part of what living is about. I'm supposed to do this research. I'm supposed to test my limits. And looking at her life that way, I think is a really interesting way to look at her character, but also life in general of somebody, if you moved through the world this way, how would that change things? How would that change your own life? And I think she's meant to reflect that to us to some degree. Totally agree. And and you saying that makes me think of sort of the last, what I would consider act of the movie. Cause I thought when she comes home and we're, we're jumping ahead, but when she comes home and is about to marry, finally, I was like, oh, we're getting our our happy ending. And I love the way that they circle back on sort of the breadcrumb of her real name being said on the ship, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's when they're in Lisbon, somebody calls her by her real name before she committed suicide. And I love the way that they didn't spoon feed it to you. It's like that gets mentioned in one scene. Mark Ruffalo's character kind of makes a face. And that's all you hear about it until the husband actually shows up. And I loved that but I didn't expect the movie to go on for another 20 or 30 minutes Mm -hmm. when she's getting ready to finally marry Max. And we think we're getting this, you know, wrapped up with a bow ending. The husband shows up and she doesn't even really think about it for a second. She's just like, Hey, I'm going to, I want to go with him. Mm -hmm. And I think you can read it in Emma Stone's eyes. If she knows that something's not right. And I think the scientist in her knows I killed myself for a reason. And you kind of see her testing the waters with him of, I know I wasn't happy with you. So I need to find out why, because if she doesn't, I think there's always going to be that question of why did my old self kill herself, essentially. Mm -hmm. I like that she sort of presses him. She asks him the question about why did it happen? And he says, you, you hated the baby which throughout the film, we've seen her react to children. And she, even though she says she doesn't have a maternal instinct, she show, she cries over the, the dying children in the one country. She sees um, at the brothel, the child in the crib and has this look about her. So when he says, oh, you hated the baby, that's why you did it. She Okay, I think but she also wanted to punch a baby. So maybe that's why she, that jived with her. That, she was yeah, like- but that I related to. I think most of us <laughs> relate to that, right? 100%. We've all wanted (laughs) to punch a crying baby, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) No, I agree But yeah, I enjoyed that. And I thought that it made sense with her character of, yeah, I need to go down this path, solve a couple of things, and then I'll be back with you. And and sorry to go on like three different topics, but I think it also ties into Max being the guy that he is. We can get on to how it's still really fucked up, the way that he goes about being okay with being betrothed to this girl at the beginning. But I like that they have this character who's like, yeah, you go do you and I'll, I'll be waiting here for you. I 
I agree that it totally jives with her character. It's not what you want her to do because you know, again, there's all these allusions to the fact that this can't be good, right? But Mm. it makes sense that she does it. So you're also not that upset. You're like, okay, well, of course she's going to follow that thread, right? She's got to figure out where it goes. And it's very risky, but she does it anyway. And you feel for Max yet again, of course, but also it it teaches her a lot. But this is another situation where, to your point, I think she knows that there's risk and she does it anyway. But then you see that risk really manifest in who he is. And I think that's the moment, too, where you're a little more scared for her than you ever have been, because it feels like you're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, I felt like, of like, okay, this is going to be the moment where she encounters the real worst of humanity and all the things that she's been able to successfully avoid up to now. And this is a real brutal, violent person, clearly. And is this going to take us somewhere really dark? And it feels like it's coming. Um, But she gets lucky. And I would say lucky there. I wouldn't say it's not it's not guaranteed that she's going to get out of that situation safely. And she does, but it is definitely lucky, I think. But even then, she doesn't really seem to, like going back to the point before, she doesn't seem that afraid. And if Mm -hmm. she does have like any kind of fear, she knows logically, okay, this is what I have to do in this situation. He's a bad person. He's probably going to hurt me. So I need to then get out of this. Like it's still always logical. I wonder though, that brings up a really good point. I wonder if it's not that she doesn't have fear, but that she's accepted fear as a part of experimentation, of a part of reality, a part of science. Like this is how I feel in this moment. And it's, I feel like it's maybe one of her many observations of her life, right? Like, okay, this feels weird. This feels, you know, maybe she's not applying the word fear to it. You know what I mean? It's more like, there's a survival instinct that probably kicks in in those moments of fear. And she's maybe noticing those things, but I wonder if it's not a lack of fear, it's an awareness of, and it's a commitment to the science of it all. Of like, like it's a calculated risk. It's a calculated yeah. risk. Like, does she have to be fearless to do these things? Not necessarily. That's true courage, right? It's to look at something mm-hmm. that you know is a risk and do it anyway. And so maybe she's not fearless. Maybe she's just really brave and, willing to sacrifice that fear and that, you know, that potential risk to, to find out the truth, to find out the science of it all, the answer to the question of it all. Yeah. The only thing that I wanted to add about sort of the, the ending, if there's a reason I gave this a nine instead of a 10, well, there's two main reasons, but I'll talk about one of them now. One of them is that that last act where she goes on that side quest with this dude to figure out, you know, why did I kill myself? Um, that felt a little rushed to me because it, hmm. I guess maybe because I was ready for the movie to be over and then they shoehorned in this, this last part, which logically yeah. does make sense to have this story play out. But sure. the speed that they had to approach villainizing this dude so quickly of him yeah. like, torturing the wait staff yeah. and like flashing a gun around, it was just, it felt so quick to be like, let's show that he's an asshole, but we got to wrap this thing up. So yeah. Yeah. It was probably a little campy, you know, a little over the top of like, yeah. We're gonna uh, we're gonna do this to an almost hyperbolic degree so that you get the point quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I could see that. I, I think that's a fair criticism. I think he does a good job of embodying all the worst things right away. Um, so it does become clear, which makes his fate really great. I think personally, <laughs> at the end, where you're like, cool, 
as he deserves, but it is still disconcerting nonetheless, right? Like all these things that are the result of these experiments, you may understand why they happen and maybe you can even connect with the logic of it all, but are, I think, less scientific. The emotional sides of us as people would look at those things and go, that's still fucking weird. Like <laughs> doesn't make it not weird, <laughs> but I, but it is a nice little bit of revenge at the end that, you know, he's in the garden acting like a goat. <laughs> and he's better now. He's better now. Exactly. <laughs> this is his best self, really. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, I feel like, you know, we could talk about this for quite a while, but in the interest of time, let's do a quick roundtable of final thoughts. I know, Lamar, you said you have a couple things you wanted to, to touch yeah. on, so, so hit us. So maybe we all go around and pick like two final notes that we want to touch on. My first note is Mark Buffalo, who's awesome. Um, <laughs> I told you guys we're, we filmed two episodes in a row today, so... Did you know he's 55? He's 55 not 55. Years old? That is a lie. That is yeah, a lie. Said, occasionally I'll look at him and I'm like, oh, I'm kind of aging like Mark Ruffalo. I'm okay with it. And then I realize he's 16 years older than me and I'm like, fuck. But, <laughs> and then you're like, I am not aging like Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm aging like a poor Mark Ruffalo who can't afford, you know, all the Hollywood healthcare. But anyway he kills it in this i've seen him and we've seen him in so many roles over the years and i think he's one of those underappreciated actors he's not quite a you know a character actor like i wouldn't call gary oldman a character actor, but somebody who delves so deep into these crazy ass eccentric roles but i think he's underappreciated for the variety of things that he does do and in this just when i first heard him doing the english accent I went, okay, that's a choice, like a really strong English accent. But the way that he takes it intentionally over the top throughout this film just makes it so much funnier. I think that he drives probably about 40% of the comedy in this. I'd say like 50% is Emma Stone and then, you know, the last 10% is the other characters. But I think the two of them just completely kill it. And he has so many great lines that I love. Yeah, I think I'm he's really glad that they took him in a comedic Yes. kind of direction because his first appearance was a total piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Which, oh, I'm going to probably rain on the parade here, but that was one of my big takeaways of he becomes a very likable character and somebody that you think is funny. I mean, he is awful in his own ways and he has, I think, a lot of just, you know, product of the patriarchy kind of flaws that you can sort of write off. But one that was very difficult for me to write off with his character was that the first interaction he has with Bella, you can't get away from the fact that that's an assault. Mm -hmm. And you, it is presented quite casually in a way that I don't find to be acceptable. And I think that's my biggest criticism of this film is that not only does that moment moment happen in a really again casual almost discarded kind of way unfortunately a real tone of reality to that of this tacit acceptance that this would happen potentially to a woman especially in her first interaction with a man that she doesn't know and that she just met that was really gut-wrenching for me and really hard to watch but again seated in some unfortunate realities of the world that we live in. But the problem I then had with it again was we just move on and she goes with him and she participates in this with him. And that is absolutely all her choice. And that's great for her. But I don't know that she realizes in that moment what has just happened. And can she absorb what has just happened? 
before she's making this choice and, and what that violation means. So he becomes really a great comedic character and a really interesting guy. And I don't think he's necessarily evil. I think he's a product of his time, but I don't love how that was presented and kind of overlooked ultimately. Yeah. It's the, the first like 20 minutes of the whole movie. I was kind of like you were saying, like Lamar was saying very uncomfortable in parts and being like, Oh, Oh, this is, this all seems so predatory. Like this is mm-hmm. this poor girl. And you're just like kind of afraid that the worst is going to happen at some point. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, Oh, she's just going to get taken advantage of by all of these men that, just kind of like even knowing that she's not at the same mental level or capacity that mm-hmm. they're just like, yeah, I'll get engaged to her. The, mm-hmm. She has a mentality of like a toddler at this point. Sure. I'll marry her. And like, yeah, you know, she's still pretty. So I'm still going to take a shot. Like it's just wild. Yeah. The choices they make are there's at that moment, they're all treating her like a commodity you know, and like she is something to just be taken advantage of to some degree. And, and even again, Willem Dafoe as a doctor is trying to protect her, but is still ultimately controlling her. There's no getting around that either. And the fact that the three, these three men feel in some way, the right to control her and where her life will go is incredibly problematic. And yeah, I agree with you. It was really hard watch the first 20 or so minutes, they all start to redeem themselves, I think is true and fair to say, right? Like, Dr. Baxter does finally let her go. He realizes it's not his choice to make. Max realizes that he needs to let her be her, no matter how much that like repeatedly hurts him because of his own problems with patriarchy and and natural gender roles. And then ultimately, you know, that evolves for each of them. But the first, the initial bit of that is very hard to get through, I think. Yeah, it's a lot of just watching these men try to control her in different ways. And like, some of them have the best intentions, like Willem Dafoe, good intentions. I'm pretty sure right. Max had good intentions. Right. Uh, Mark Ruffalo, probably not so much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think just- Duncan, Mark Ruffalo's character didn't start with good intentions. I think he gets mm-hmm. better, but then he also reverts. Like you see him really... Grow, go through this real roller coaster as a character, which is at the very least entertaining, but he's struggling with, with this for sure. Yeah. It's also fun to see all the men's reaction once they realize, oh, I can't own her or control mm-hmm. her. Like they all react differently, but there's definitely a reaction. A hundred percent. I think it's like different, different styles of manipulation that each of them is trying to sort of implement. And mm-hmm. yeah, to your point, Janelle, like not, they realize She's not the regular girl that'll like play into this system that we've sort of constructed. I I was sitting here thinking about it while you guys were talking, but I I thought, well, what if they took out when Duncan goes upstairs and touches her, if they took out the physical touch component and it was just him sort of verbally saying, hey, run away with me before you marry this guy, that would have taken that element out. But I I don't think we would have, I think I'm not defending that choice, but I think that for, to your point, Mackenzie, the comeuppance is then for the better part of two hours, we see him being driven mad because he doesn't have the power over her that he thought he had. And he's, mm-hmm. you know, getting him. He tells her not to fall in love with it. If it hasn't happened already, don't fall in love with me. But oh then he God. falls for her because yeah. he can't really have her and control her. And he's yeah. going mad because of it. He goes broke because of it. And mm-hmm. just, you know, at the end, by the end, he's in ruin. So mm-hmm. I think that 
you had to have that to really make us hate that character at the start. And even though he does function as a comedic character throughout, we are seeing him, we're enjoying seeing him get tortured because he was such a dick in the beginning. They could have made a different decision, most likely, of how you get yeah. that point across. But I feel like that did get me on board the, the fuck this guy train. I, I think that's a fair call out. I also think it's fair to say that while it is incredibly uncomfortable and awful that that was their first interaction, again, it's not out of the realm of possibility. No. We just have to look at this uncomfortable thing that is all too real, you know, and that sucks. But the thing that sucks about it is that she doubles down and goes with him. But I agree mm -hmm. with you. You do see him. Yeah. Get his comeuppance. And then eventually like when he, to your point, Janelle realizes he really can't control her. His reaction is let me get her actual husband. I'm going to find this person who can maybe get revenge on my behalf. Like that's how much he can't lose her or lose the lose in general in this context. Right. And it sets off that whole last act. And yeah, I think it's, I think all of their fates and how they react to her are really interesting because she lands in this very contented place and and the people around her have all kind of fallen by the wayside either in importance or actual you know gone mad or what have you or and she's just living her life living her best life <laughs> yeah she's got her academic pursuits she's got her drinks and her nice little garden and all of her yeah. pets i mean what more do you want <laughs> right it sounds idyllic to me. Like sign yeah. me up. All of it. Check, check, check. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that was that was the last thing I wanted to touch on. And I we got we got some good conversation out of that. Did you have anything specific that we haven't discussed? Um no, I don't think so. I just liked because uh, I keep saying that this is like a feminist movie, and that was like the first thing that popped in my head. Like the credits were rolling on the screen, and I was like, this is possibly a more feminist movie than Barbie. Like it was very yeah. like those were the tones I was picking up the entire time. And I did hear from like some people in my circle of friends that were like, I liked Barbie, but it was like too on the nose too mm -hmm. like hit you over the head. Like I have one friend who always says like, show me, don't tell me. So mm -hmm. if that's your view of like Barbie, I would say this would be probably a bet. This is very show. Don't tell, like don't yeah. explain it out, like spell it out for people. Like let yeah. the tone kind of sink in. Yeah. And I, I respect both ways of going about it, right? Because sometimes people do need to be hit over the head with a theme. But I also yeah. like that they didn't hear that you have to work for it a little. And also that you can enjoy it potentially without ingesting all of that it, on its own, independent of anything else. It is a visually stunning, creative, interesting, unique story. And unique, I think, is really key there as well. Like you just, even though it is an homage to other things to somebody said, uh, I was reading some some things about it, like Dracula, and of course, Frankenstein and, and all of these things. It is still somehow, despite it, you know, some of its inspiration, wholly original, I think. And I think that's what's resonating with people when they watch it and why it is, you know, seeing the critical reaction that it is, because it's, it, it does a lot in a short period of time. Yeah. And it definitely leaves you thinking, like we saw it not last night, the night before. And I pretty much keep finding myself going back and thinking about it over and over and over again. Like it stays with you. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's just, you know, it is an impactful film. So I think for the audience's sake, like who had maybe haven't seen it, if you made it all the way through here, 
we're so sorry that you haven't seen it yet and you got all the spoilers. (laughs) That's Um, on them. (laughs) That's on them. That's on them. You're right. But if you haven't, then I think it's, it's worth that watch for that reason, right? Of like, it's going to stay with you and, and you're going to want to think about it a lot. I think that's fair. I just want to apologize if you haven't seen this movie on behalf of the actor on the boat. What's his name? Gerard Gerard Carmichael? That was the worst part of the film for me. I don't know if it was the casting. I don't know if he was only on set with Emma Stone when she was in that era of, I like that, Bella has eras. It's like the Taylor Swift tour. (laughs) She does. Yeah. Bella has, when she's in that era, and I'm like, was he just in scenes with her and he thought that's how they were all supposed to talk and he thought he was doing a bit? Because his delivery... Uh, I just, dude, I could not. It, it, if I, were, it. I can't really even do an impression of it. But he's like, Mackenzie, you are filming a podcast. That's how he <laughs> sounded throughout the entire fuck. Like, I was so glad he was only in it for 10 minutes. And I'm sure he's a great actor and a great person. But God, that part of the was, movie was rough for me. Wasn't the interpretation you wanted. Yeah, I can see that. No. It, was not the, it was not the best. <laughs> not- <laughs> I'm a cynic. We are on a boat. Oh, my God. Well, you did do an impression, though, so I'm real proud of you. Good job. It's, it's giving very, like, Pee Wee Herman big adventure. <laughs> like, you have a telephone call at the front desk. <laughs> oh, I love it. Also, I love that that's our first It's Giving reference on the pod. We feel so cool now. I've determined that Janelle is the coolest person on the pod, for sure. Oh, oh thank you. Do I get a vote? No. No. I was going to say, I love that simultaneously we were just like no well (laughs) all that to say we went to town on this film and we could much much more but uh we'll we'll let you guys decide what you make of it i think and before we go though just a reminder that oscar month will continue for the rest of the month so please come back and check it out next week we'll be doing our best actor selection which Mm -hmm. is currently being pulled out on instagram yeah definitely the fact that we said we wanted to keep this episode short but we went on like we could have gone for another hour this is such a great film and discussable like talk worthy piece definitely watch it if you haven't yet yeah and we still yeah we missed so many things but uh hopefully it gave you enough to, to be inspired to watch it but for now go have a drink and watch a thing Cheers. 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 Clink, clink. Cheers. Have a wonderful week, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>